Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, open your Bibles with me, please, to Mark chapter 10, the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And remember that as Jesus came into the world, he came to bring the kingdom of God. Early on in Mark's Gospel, Mark 1.15, he tells us, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is it to enter the kingdom of God? Well, in one sense, the kingdom of God is a realm. It's a place. Heaven, eventually the new earth, and eventually we're going there. But in the New Testament, to come into the kingdom of God is not to come, at least at this time, to a place, to a realm, but it is to come into a relationship. The kingship of Jesus is what the kingdom of God is all about. And when we come into the kingdom of God, we come under the kingly rule of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to come into his kingdom. And already in the Gospel of Mark, we have some indications of what it means to come to the kingdom, to come into the kingdom. For example, in chapter 8, which we studied, Jesus said that if you would follow him, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. You must turn from the self-centered, self-preoccupied life and turn to him. In Mark 9, which we study, Jesus says that if your eye offends, you pluck it out. If your hand offends, you cut it off. If your foot offends, you cut it off. He's saying that to follow him, you need to not only trust in him as your savior, but you need to turn from those things which you once worshiped. In chapter 10, verse 15, just before our text, he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a a child will not enter it. So coming into the kingdom of God means we come with a childlike humility and dependence. But as we come to our text for this morning, what Jesus has taught in principle now takes on the flesh and blood of reality as he deals with a would-be disciple, a man who's interested in eternal life. What does it mean? What will it mean for him to deny himself? What would it mean for him to pluck out an eye or cut off a hand or cut off a foot to follow Jesus? That's what we will see in a few minutes. The encounter we're going to study illustrates what it means to really follow Jesus. We will also learn from Jesus how to evangelize lost sinners. We'll get lessons from the master evangelist this morning as we see Jesus dealing with a lost sinner. And if you are here and you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, you will learn more clearly what Jesus requires of you. So our text is Mark 10, 17 to 22. Follow as I read. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. 
typical of my outlines. We're going to see three major things this morning. <clears throat> and the first is this, what I'm calling the profile of a hopeful prospect for the kingdom. The profile of a hopeful prospect for the kingdom. Mark doesn't seem concerned here to, to give a lot of circumstantial details. He just wants to tell this story. And the fact is that this particular account is given in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which indicates it's important to God that we get the message of this passage. And as we profile this seeker coming to Jesus, I want to note five things about him. First, his outward status. Mark describes him here as only a man, but Luke describes him in Luke 18 as a ruler. Now, the word ruler, arche, can mean a lot of things. It can mean the ruler of a nation. It can mean the ruler of the Sanhedrin. It can mean a magistrate. Most commentators think that this man was a ruler in the synagogue. He was a leader in the Jewish synagogue. And so he was a man of some competence. He was a man with some leadership ability. He was a man of some moral and religious respectability. He was also rich. You notice at the end of the passage, it says of, of this man that he owned much property. Luke's version actually says he was extremely rich. Maybe he had inherited the wealth, or maybe he was just an industrious man who had worked hard to earn it. And Matthew tells us in Matthew's version that he was young, which makes his accomplishments all the more remarkable and praiseworthy that he was young and yet had attained that status. So we usually refer to this man, when you piece all that the synoptic gospels say together, we call him the rich young ruler. He was young, he was rich, and he was a ruler. Notice next his apparent earnestness about his spiritual condition. He comes running to Jesus and kneeling before him, asking, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He seems concerned, really concerned about his spiritual condition. He's not a, concerned about appearance. He's not concerned. He's not self-conscious. He, he's not concerned about dignity. But in a public setting, not privately alone with Jesus, but in a public setting, at least the 12 disciples were there. He runs up to Jesus, kneels down, and asks him this question that is burning in his heart. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? There's an apparent earnestness there about his spiritual condition. Next, you see his apparent respect for Jesus. Not only does he kneel down before Jesus, but he calls him good teacher. Those who study the Talmud tell us that that's virtually unheard of, that respectful address of a rabbi. So he obviously has a respect for Jesus. He's coming to Jesus thinking Jesus would have the answer uh, to this question about eternal life. And so he has an apparent respect for Jesus. He has an evident regard for God's law. After Jesus presents him with several commands, listen to how he responds in verse 20. Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. He has been a conscientious Jewish law keeper. The moral law of God has been the norm for his life. And so far as he knew, he had not flagrantly disobeyed any of those commandments against murder, adultery, stealing, lying, defrauding, and he had honored his parents. And so he had a, not only a respect for Jesus, but he had an evident respect for the law of God. But fifthly and finally, he still had a sense of inadequacy. Despite the consciousness of having rendered flawless obedience to the law of God, 
he was still unsettled and insecure. Luke has, or Matthew's version has him asking, what am I still lacking? With all that he had done in his own eyes, his conscience was still troubling him that maybe there was something missing. Maybe things are not as right as they should be between myself and God. Something was missing. The commentator, Lenski, Lutheran commentator says, picture him, an exemplary young man in early manhood, fine and clean morally, as the phrase now goes, the son of wealthy parents, but not spoiled by wealth, with a strong religious bent, an esteemed member of the church, in fact, one of the pillars, a ruler of the local synagogue, but the man himself is not satisfied. There was somehow a lack which he could not explain. So you look at this young man and say, he's got a lot together. He's got a lot going for him, doesn't he? He was well positioned in society. He was successful. He was wealthy. He was moral. Something was deeply troubling him. And so he runs to Jesus, falls on his knees, and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And in Matthew's version, what am I still lacking? You know, I can very much relate to this man in my own personal testimony. Francis Schaeffer, the Christian theologian of a previous generation, once described a woman's bead necklace. A woman has this necklace, and there are all these beads. And imagine if you cut the string, and all the beads just roll around. I remember my life. It seemed outwardly together. If you looked at my life outwardly, you would say, this guy's got a happy life. He's got things together. I had loving parents. I had a loving home. I was in college. I was a good student. I was playing sports. I was in a fraternity. I had friends. Everything appeared to be together in my life, but there was a gnawing emptiness in my life. Something was wrong. Something was missing. And in Schaefer's terms, there was no string holding the beads of my life together. No purpose, no meaning. I didn't know God. And so this man He's got a lot together, but there's something missing. Friends, life is more than wealth. Life is more than good social standing. It's more than creature comforts. It's more than health and vigor. As Augustine said, we were made for God, and our hearts are restless until we rest in him. Well, he comes to Jesus. Now we're going to see how the master evangelist Jesus deals with this man. And we will learn some lessons about evangelism from the master evangelist Jesus. So second point is we want to look at the pattern of the master evangelist with this prospect for the kingdom. Pastor Walt Chantry, about a generation ago in the 1970s, wrote a book entitled Today's Gospel, Authentic or Synthetic. It's kind of a modern-day classic, at least among Reformed Baptists and perhaps beyond, an excellent book, Authentic or Synthetic, Today's Gospel. And what he does is he contrasts the way Jesus dealt with this sinner in this passage with the practices of then-modern-day evangelism. And I can say that whatever was true in the 1970s has not gotten a lot better today. And uh, he compares the kind of superficial decisionism of a lot of evangelism to the way Jesus dealt with this, um, this man. He says that, you know, this guy would have been an easy prey for many modern evangelists. They would have had him in the boat in no time, right? Just answer a few questions. You believe Jesus is a Savior. You believe you're a sinner. You believe Jesus is a Savior. 
Yeah, good, you're in, you're a Christian. Listen to what Chantry says on page 21 of his book. Aren't you a little disappointed to see Jesus handling this tender soul so roughly? How could our Lord use such obvious poor, obviously poor tactics with a sinner? He began with a rebuke, went on to talk about the Ten Commandments of all things, demanded immense sacrifice as a condition of having eternal life, and allowed the fish to get away. Didn't he know how to lead a soul to himself? If you are surprised, surely you are the one who doesn't understand evangelism. Look again. So let's look at how Jesus dealt with this seeking sinner. First thing we notice that Jesus directs the man to the character of God. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> the man comes to him, kneels down, asks the question, and he calls Jesus good. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Whoa. On the surface, that appears that Jesus is disowning goodness. He's, and on the surface, it would appear that Jesus is saying, look, I'm not good. Only God is good. And I'm sure if you're a, a heretic, you would love to pick up on that and, and assert that. Yeah, see, Jesus is, is claiming he's not good. Only God is good. But that's not at all what Jesus was saying. In John chapter 10, does he not identify himself as the good shepherd? In another passage, he stands before his enemies and, and he says, which of you convicts me of sin? Come on, bring it on. No one. Of course he saw himself as good. He's not denying that he is good. But what is he doing here? Why is he saying this? Why is he rebuking the man? Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. What he is saying is you use the word good to describe me, but you use it too lightly and superficially. Likely this man looked at Jesus as just a man, a good man, but maybe a man who himself had attained to eternal life and from whom he could learn the way of eternal life. But he was only looking at Jesus as a human teacher. Man is wondering, have I done enough? Has, have I have I've been good enough to, to get to heaven, to have eternal life? And what Jesus is trying to do is to point him to the absolute goodness of God. You see, we can only see ourselves rightly when we see ourselves against the backdrop of who God is. We have a tendency, don't we, to compare ourselves with other people. And I don't care if you're one of the worst criminals. You can always find somebody worse than you in the cell next door who did some, some worse crime than you. We can always find ourselves you know, coming out shining when we compare ourselves to other people. But what we need to do is compare ourselves to God. You see, the gospel begins with a message about God. Because only when we see God rightly can we see ourselves rightly. It was already mentioned this morning, I think in the prayer, our brother's prayer, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, this godly man, comes into the temple of the Lord and he sees the thrice holy God. And what is his response? He sees himself for the first time as he really is and says, I am undone. I'm a man of filthy lips, and I dwell among a people of filthy lips. How did he come to arrive at that? He saw God for who he was. The gospel begins with a sight of God. I heard a preacher recently, Mark Dever, to be exact, say, our problem is not with self-image, it's with God-image. We need to understand who God is. 
And God is a God of perfect goodness, perfect holiness, perfect purity. Only when we see that will we see ourselves rightly. And here's where we often go wrong in our evangelism. We get too quickly to the truth, and it is a wonderful truth that God is love. But before God said, or or John in his first epistle in chapter 4 says God is love, way back in chapter 1 he says God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. You will not appreciate the love of God until you appreciate that God is light, God is purity, God is pure goodness. He dwells in unapproachable light. And so in our evangelism, as with Jesus, we need to steer people away from comparing themselves to one another. They must see themselves against the backdrop of the purity and the goodness of God. You know, on a field, you might see a flock of sheep, and against the backdrop of green grass and brown dirt, they look somewhat white. But if there's a fresh coat of fallen snow, what do those sheep look like? They look pretty dirty, don't they? And when we compare ourselves to others, we can come out looking pretty good. But when we compare ourselves against the purity and holiness and goodness of God, we are like filthy-coated sheep against the backdrop of the pure white snow. So Jesus first directs the man to the character of God. Next, he directs the man to the law of God. After asking the man to consider the absolute goodness of God, against which he must judge himself. He calls his attention to the moral law of God. Look at verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He calls attention to five of the Ten Commandments, and then this one, defraud, is not one of the Ten Commandments, but it's lifted from Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 24, where the Israelites were told not to oppress their neighbor or rob him, don't oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. In other words, don't deprive a man of what is his due. That's what it means to defraud, to withhold something from someone to whom it is due. Now, why does Jesus mention the Ten Commandments? On the surface, it might appear that Jesus is saying you can be saved by commandment keeping, right? You want eternal life? Well, here are the commandments, as if to say, if you keep the commandments, you will have eternal life. Is that what Jesus is intending? Not at all. The Apostle Paul puts it in clear terms in Galatians 2.16 when he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified, made right with God by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. He says it and he repeats it. You can't be justified by works, only by faith. There's no way that Jesus was saying, yeah, you want eternal life? Just keep the commandments. Of course, Jesus wasn't saying that. Why then did he mention the commandments? He mentioned the commandments because of one of the purposes of the moral law of God. It is stated for us in Romans 3.20 when Paul says, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And 1 John 3.14 says, sin is transgression of the law. You can't know that you're a sinner except by the law. You don't know that you're doing something wrong in walking on the grass unless there's a sign that says, keep off the grass then you know you're transgressing, you're crossing a line and doing something wrong. So by the law comes the knowledge of sin. The reason he mentions the commandments 
is to try to show this man that you're not a commandment keeper. You're not good like God is good. Isn't this what Jesus was doing in John 4 with the Samaritan woman? He whets her appetite and gets her interested in water. And then he says, the, the water, this water will make you thirst again, but the water I will give will spring up in you into eternal life. And he, he whets her appetite to the point where she says, Lord, or whatever she called him, sir, give me this water. Remember what Jesus did next? He wants to give that water, but he says, um, go call your husband. Uh-oh. And she didn't have a husband. She had five husbands, and the one she had now was not her husband. She was an immoral adulteress. What is Jesus doing? I want to give you this water. But before I give you the water, you need to understand how thirsty you are and how much you need this water of life. You need to come face to face with your sinnerhood. And he lovingly showed her that she was a sinner and then reveals himself as the Messiah. This is Paul's experience. This is how God used the law in Paul's life. Listen to Romans 7, 7 to 9, where Paul gives uh, something of his testimony as to how he was brought to faith in Christ. Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have come known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Paul finally understood the law of God and its in, inner meaning, and it, it's, it killed him. And he realized, I am not the law keeper I thought I was. I am a law breaker. And that led him to Christ. You see, one of the functions of the moral law of God is to be a mirror. You don't use the mirror to wash your face, but you look in the mirror every morning to see, in case of you men, you've got some stubble that needs to be shaved off. And uh, if you're one who shaves or you've got some dirt and your hair is all messed up and we see ourselves truly by looking in the mirror. And that's what the law does. The law is a mirror to show us our sin. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. And remember what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount with the commandments of God. He brought them down to God's inner intent. You've heard that it has been said you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you're just angry with someone and hateful, you've committed murder. You've heard that it has been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. He wasn't contradicting his father's law. He was showing the father's inner intent. It's not just outward obedience, but it's obedience from the heart that is important to God. So what Jesus is doing with this man who professes an interest in eternal life, he's calling his attention to some of the commands of God in order to help the man to rightly assess himself. So for the man to see himself accurately and to see his need, he first points him to the absolute goodness of God, then he points him to the righteous law of God, the only standard against which he might rightly evaluate himself. But then next, Jesus calls the man to repentance in the major area of his rebellion. So here is Jesus, and he heaps these moral commands on the man, not as a way of salvation, but to try to show the man, to try to get at where is this man at in his thinking. Verse 20 shows that all this wielding of the sword by Jesus, the sword of the law by Jesus, failed. 
Because after he rattles off all those commandments, what does the man say? Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. No problem, Jesus. I check all the boxes. I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a commandment keeper. No problem. And it's like Jesus is thrusting with the sword of the law. You know, he thrusts the sword into the man. Do not murder. No problem. I'm not a murderer. He thrusts the sword. Do not commit adultery. No problem. I've never committed adultery. Thrusts the sword. Do not steal. No problem. I'm not a thief. And every time Jesus thrusts the sword of the law to try to cut the man, the blow is parried. It doesn't wound. Why? Not because the law is not sharp enough, but because the man is so dull. His hide is so thick that he can't see his sin and he can't see his depravity. He doesn't understand the depth and breadth of God's law. He was nurtured under the Pharisees. And the Pharisees thought that as long as I obeyed the law externally, as long as I hadn't committed the act of murder, I'm not a murderer. As long as I haven't committed the act of adultery, I'm not an adulterer. That's why Paul could say in his testimony in Philippians 3, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. As a Pharisee, I could check all the boxes and say, I'm a law keeper. I've done that. But every time Jesus thrusts the sword of the law, the man parries the blow. He deflects it. No, 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 Jesus, I, I've done that. I've done those things. But Jesus is not done wielding the sword of the law. He makes one more powerful thrust, and this time he draws blood. Verse 21. Okay, you've kept all the commandments. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. You see, Jesus was under no illusion that this man really was a commandment keeper. He knew the man was not squeaky clean in that he knew the heart of this man and he knows all of our hearts. And Jesus could see what was keeping him from eternal life. Compare it to a heart surgeon. You have some sort of blockage in an artery in your heart. So the heart surgeon uses a, a catheter and he's got a screen. And as that catheter goes into the artery, he's looking for that blockage. Finally, it shows up on the screen. There's the blockage in the artery. What does the heart surgeon do? He follows the catheter with, he puts a balloon on the catheter. It's called angioplasty. And the purpose of the balloon is to remove the blockage. He discovers the blockage and then he sends a balloon on the tip of that catheter to open up and clear the blockage. Well, Jesus Christ is a spiritual heart surgeon, and he discovers the blockage. What's keeping this man from having eternal life? Here's the blockage. He loves his money. He loves his things. And so Jesus diagnoses it, and then he does the angioplasty. What's the remedy? What is the solution that the spiritual heart surgeon Jesus is going to employ? It is repentance. Repentance. He says, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor. That's the spiritual angioplasty. That's going to remove and remedy the blockage. You need to repent because this was the major area of his rebellion against God. He felt himself clean on those other commandments, 
But what about the 10th commandment, you shall not covet? Or what about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me? He had another God. His money, his stuff, his things was his God. So after all, he is a commandment keeper. And Jesus finds him out. Now, let me just take an aside and say, is it wrong to have money and possessions? Absolutely not. Is it wrong to have much money? Is it wrong categorically to be rich? The Bible answers no. Proverbs 10.22 says, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. There are some who are rich by the blessing of God. Gary is, uh, loves uh, Laterno, who was a great businessman, he was a wealthy man, gave most of it away. Uh, he was wealthy by the blessing of God. David was wealthy by the blessing of God. Solomon was wealthy by the blessing of God. It is not wrong to be wealthy. In 1 Corinthians 6, 17, as Paul is telling Timothy to address various ones in the local church, he says, this is what you need to say to the rich, Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works. He doesn't say, Timothy, tell the rich people they need to get rid of their riches. He says, no, tell them not to trust in their riches and tell them to be rich in good works, maybe to use that unrighteous mammon for the kingdom of God. But it is not categorically wrong to be wealthy if God blesses you with it. But is it wrong to love money and riches? To that we say absolutely yes. First Timothy 6.10, Paul says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6.24, Jesus says, you cannot love God and mammon, and mammon is wealth. You can't they are mutually exclusive. Either you will love the one and hate the other or vice versa. You cannot love money, love wealth, and love God. And so Jesus calls this man to a radical turning from his idol. Now, is this then the prescription for every wealthy person? Every wealthy person that you meet, do you need to tell them, well, like the rich young ruler, you need to sell everything and give to the poor. You know, pre-Reformation, in the time of um, the, the monasteries, they, they kind of had that mindset. It was called asceticism and, and monasticism. And the most spiritual people, the super spiritual saints, were the ones who deprived themselves of marriage and possessions. They went off to live a celibate life in the monastery. Is that what the Bible commands? Actually not. In 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul actually calls that doctrine of demons. Those who forbid marriage and certain foods. That's a doctrine of demons. That's not superior spirituality. A.B. Bruce, in his book, The Training of the Twelve, says this. This theory of asceticism and monasticism, that everybody has to impoverish themselves, this theory is, in the first place, based on an erroneous assumption that abstinence from things lawful is intrinsically a higher sort of virtue than temperance in the use of them. This is not true. Abstinence is the virtue of the weak. Temperance is the virtue of the strong. You hear what he's saying? To abstain totally is easier than using it in a balanced way. And so, because the scriptures do not condemn riches across the boards, and because the scripture denounces asceticism, 
We're not taking Jesus' words here as the norm to be applied in every situation. But having given those disclaimers, how do we explain that Jesus calls this man to very radical action? Well, we do it in light of what we studied previously in Mark 9. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. Anything that will keep you from loving and trusting Jesus Christ must go from your life. Everything that is a God substitute, a functional God, must be crushed out of your life so that Jesus Christ alone can be the Lord of your life. You see, Jesus doesn't drive thumbtacks with a sledgehammer. If anything less than that radical action would have brought the man eternal life, Jesus would have prescribed it. He's not a killjoy. He's not looking from heaven trying to rob us of enjoyment. No, he knew that for this man to get into heaven, that idol had to be destroyed. It had to be dethroned from his heart. And so he says, go sell and give to the poor. Further, as our model evangelist, Jesus calls the man to faith in himself and treasure in heaven. Yes, he says, go sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When Jesus takes something away, he gives something in its place. And what he gives in its place is infinitely better than what he takes away. He's taking away his riches, but he's giving him the riches of heaven and eternal life. How can you measure that? Jesus said, don't lay up your your treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal, but lay your treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt and thieves can't break through and steal. That's an infinite, inviolable treasure. Give up the earthly treasure that you can't keep anyway for treasure that you can't lose. And so Jesus calls a man to faith in himself and promises him treasure in heaven in place of the treasure that he forfeits. But then finally, a note about Jesus as the master evangelist. He's, what's his motivation as an evangelist? Love for God and love for the sinner. Where is his love for God seen? He points to God's goodness. God is good. He points to the purity of God's moral law. And he recognized that by this man's idolatry, he's offending his father. You shall have no other gods before me. And so Jesus is zealous and jealous for his father's glory and his evangelism. But friends, he's also filled with love for the sinner. You notice what it says? Even though the man went away, it says Jesus felt a love for him. And the word is agape, generally used for the divine love. But as commentators will tell you, sometimes it's used parallel to phileo. Phileo is the the friendship love, the love of affection. It's not saying that he was loved with the eternal saving love of God and was elect. He's saying Jesus as a man looked at him and he felt a love for him. There were some things that were attractive in this man that were pleasing. He was living an inoffensive life. He was trying to be better. He had avoided gross outward sins. He had come to the right source, to Jesus for eternal life. There were things that moved Jesus with an affectionate love for the man. Walter Chantry calls it the gnawing pain of pitying sorrow 
that Jesus felt for this man, even as he walked away. What motivated the great evangelist? Zeal for his father's glory and genuine, sincere love for the sinner. And then finally, we see the parting in sorrow. Oh, this was so hopeful. It looked so hopeful. The man came running, kneeling. He wanted eternal life. He came to the right person. He came for the right reason. Oh, it seems so hopeful. But it doesn't have a happy ending because verse 22 says, but at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. What was the occasion of his parting? The word of Jesus. Jesus gave the terms of discipleship. You see, even as the law of God is fixed and inflexible, the gospel of God is fixed as well. He couldn't alter the terms. These were the terms. You either take them or leave them. And so it was the words of Jesus, the terms of discipleship, that was the occasion for him leaving. But there was emotion in the parting. It was not an easy or pleasant decision. He went away being made sorrowful. He wanted eternal life, but not enough. And the rain clouds of sorrow moved in and engulfed his soul. But he was resolved in the parting. It's interesting when it says he went away. It's in the aorist tense, which is kind of punctilier. He didn't stay to debate, to argue, to reason with Jesus, to plead with him. It was like, okay, if those are the terms, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I can't do that. And the cause of the party, why did he leave? He owned much property. Or as one commentator said, the property owned him. He wanted eternal life, but not enough to give up his precious possessions. You remember the classic words of Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary to the Alka Indians in, was it 1955 or 56? As a young man, he said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You turn that around. He is a fool who holds on to what he cannot keep and forfeits what is eternal and what he cannot lose. This man proved a fool. Well, brothers and sisters, let's make some applications and then we're done. What lessons can we learn? And I said Jesus is an example to us of the master evangelist. But before we look at Jesus' example, we need to look at his identity. I, I was rushing that, yeah, Jesus is an example. How do we need to follow his example? But, but before you look at Jesus as an example, look at who he was. Jesus is God. Can you imagine any mortal man saying to somebody, look, you need to radically change your life. You need to impoverish yourself, give up your devotion to your things and your money, and you need to come follow me, devote yourself to me. Can you imagine any one of us saying that? A mere mortal saying that to another mere mortal? That would be the height of delusional arrogance to say that. Devote your life to me, not to these things. And it would be arrogant if it weren't for the fact of who Jesus is. He's God. He's a mortal man, but he's God in human flesh. He's the creator, and he has every right to claim full allegiance to himself. I think this account is another proof that Jesus is God, claiming whole soul devotion to himself. But what about Jesus as an example to us in evangelism? Like Jesus, we need to tell people what God is like. Don't rush to God as love before you tell them God is light. God is so good. He's so holy. 
He dwells in unapproachable light. You can never be good enough to live with God. God is light. And when they're crushed by the light of God, then tell them the good news. But you know, he's a God of love. And his love, he so loved the world, he sent his son. But we begin with the character of God. God is light. Secondly, like Jesus, we must tell, um, you know, I was going to give an illustration there. Good news is good news against a bad situation. You know, if we say, hey, you know, it's good news that little Austin was born healthy. Isn't that good news? Mervyn J. Jr., who's not here today, was just born a couple weeks ago. That's good news. But you know what's really good news? Is that little Nicholas is healthy. Why? Because we didn't know if little Nicholas was going to live. And we didn't know that if he lived, he was gonna have, gonna, not going to have serious brain damage. That's really good news because it's good news against the backdrop of a bad situation. And the gospel's good news only when people face the bad news that God is holy, God is good. And then like Jesus, we must teach lost people the law of God. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law needs to get into their consciences as Jesus gave it. You're a murderer because you're angry with your neighbor. You're an adulterer, though you haven't committed the act, but you've lusted. And we need to slay people with the law to prepare them for the gospel. Spurgeon said that the scarlet thread of the law, I'm sorry, the needle of the law precedes the scarlet thread of the gospel. And like Jesus, we need to call people to repentance. That's often missing in a lot of evangelism. Call them to turn away from and turn away from the major area where they have been in rebellion against God. This man was majorly idolatrous in the area of his love of money. That's the area where he needs to turn. Because if Jesus is not Lord of all, then Jesus is not Lord at all. And then, like Jesus, we need to call people to whole soul trust in him as Lord as well as Savior. You know, we've talked about this carnal Christian idea. It's been one of the great heresies in recent decades. It's led a lot of people to a false sense of security. You can be a Christian, but you can be carnal. You see, Jesus didn't offer this man two plans. Well, you want eternal life? Well, here's the basic plan. You can take me as Savior and negotiate lordship later. That's the basic plan. If you want the premium plan... You can take me as Savior and Lord. There weren't two plans. There's only one plan. We don't make Jesus Lord. Paul says, or Peter says, on the day of Pentecost, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And if you come to Jesus, you come to the Jesus who is. And he's Savior and Lord. You don't make him Lord. You come to him as Lord. And so in our gospel presentation, we have to say, come to Jesus as Savior, but you must come to him as King as well, because that's who he is. And then, like Jesus, friends, we need to be motivated in our evangelism by love for lost people. Not, you know, to check our Bibles, not to, you know, meet some quota we're witnessing to people. People know if you really care about them, don't they? They know if you care, if they're just a, an impersonal soul you want to save, or if you really care about them because your heart bleeds for them because they're heading for a Christless eternity. Jesus loved this man even though he walked away. And we need to love people sincerely in bringing the gospel to them. And then finally, is there anybody here who is like this young man? Maybe you've got a lot of things together in your life, but there's something missing, this gnawing sense of insecurity 
What you need is Jesus Christ, and you need to come to him as your Savior and as your Lord, and he will welcome you. He will forgive you. He will change you forever. He will send his Holy Spirit to live within you. So we all were idolaters. By the grace of God, many of us have come to Jesus. If you have not yet done that, those are the terms. Those are the 